Genesis 32 and verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. St. Augustine was, still is, through writing, one of the most influential theologians in the history of the church. One of the main reasons for this is, of course, his very personal writings in his book Confessions, where he traces his journey of faith, his wrestles, his strivings, his innermost uh, inward battles of the flesh and his prayers before God. And one of Augustine's famous prayers that he writes goes like this, just the one line, it says, grant me to know myself in order that I may know thee. Grant me to know myself in order that I may know thee. Hundreds of years later, the great reformer John Calvin, who quotes Augustine more than he quotes any other author, um, Calvin begins his institutes of the Christian religion, and he, he talks about the interrelationship between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, and he concludes this. He concludes that in, only, that in coming to a knowledge of ourselves, a better knowledge of ourselves, are we then taken by the hand by God himself to lead us to him. And it's that theme that I want to speak on this evening. I want to speak on when God holds up a mirror. When God holds up a mirror. And the big thesis is this. In order to grow in our knowledge and experience of God, we need to grow in our knowledge of ourselves, become even more truly aware of who we are. Now, I'm aware that as I say that, as good gospel-centered people, that alarms start ringing in our minds because... When we, when we think of gospel centrality, when we think of God being supreme, we think of John the Baptist's words, he must increase, I must decrease. This idea of self-knowledge and growing in the knowledge of ourselves sounds almost counterintuitive to the whole process of discipleship. Surely the self is an enemy. Does Jesus not say, let, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves? What's, what's all this quest for personal knowledge? That sounds 
totally contrary to gospel Christianity. It sounds total uh, contradiction to genuine growth, but consider this for a minute. How can you crucify your flesh if you're not aware of the particularities of your flesh? Can't happen, can it? How do you crucify the flesh? You need to, first of all, be much more aware about certain aspects of our humanity, certain aspects of our proclivities that are uh, not helpful, that are sinful, that are grieving to the Spirit, and we, we could go on to tease that out. Uh, are there, how can we grow in our experiential knowledge of God if there are certain aspects about our humanity that we are maybe even running from, keeping suppressed? Um, so in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very famous verse, right? That's 2 Peter 3.18. But it comes immediately after 2 Peter 3.17, not to sound condescending, you know 18 comes after 17. It immediately comes after Peter saying, make sure that you're not being, you're not being carried away and becoming unstable. Now notice that. You need to look at yourself to make sure you're not being carried away, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge of self, being more aware of our own proclivity, sins, is a prerequisite in growing in the knowledge of God. So here's what one author says. One of our greatest obstacles in knowing God is our own lack of self-knowledge. So we end up wearing a mask before God, before ourselves and other people. And we can't become self-aware if we cut off our humanity out of fear of our feelings. This fear leads to unwillingness to know ourselves as we truly are, and so stunts our growth in Christ. What Jacob needed, what we need, and what we're going to see what Jacob needed, is for God sometimes to hold up a mirror to ourselves, to find out aspects in our character, in our life, that we need more of His grace to pour in. So I want to ask two questions of this text before us, because I think this text really shines a spotlight on this. Number one, what did Jacob need to become more self-aware? And then secondly, what did Jacob receive after he became more self-aware of his own issues? So here's the first question. What did Jacob need to become more self-aware? In the text, Jacob needed three things. He needed time alone, he needed to wrestle, and he needed a question. Okay, time alone, a wrestle, and a question. Time alone. Look at verse uh, 22 just to set the scene. Verse 22 indicates a connection to what has just gone on before, and this is what has happened, just to set the wider context of Jacob's story. Jacob has heard that his brother is on his way to meet him. There is going to be a form of a reunion, but Jacob is not, ex um, is not um, expecting a very positive reunion. He has not seen his brother in 20 years. He's been ostracized from his family because up until now, Jacob's life has been nothing but deceit and cunningness, if you know the story. He steals the birthright of his brother. He tricks his father in getting the blessing of the firstborn, even though Esau was the firstborn. He has then left home because Esau was raging, of course. He then, and a lot has happened within these 20 years. He started working for a guy called Laban and he fell in love with one of Laban's daughters, Rachel, and he really wanted Rachel. But what happened? The deceiver became the deceived, 
because Laban, of course, tricked him and gave him one of his other daughters, Leah, and he doesn't find that out until uh, the, the day after the wedding, the morning after the night before, and you can read into the details of what happened, of course, then, and then he's having to work another seven years to marry the one that he really wanted, and even in that incident, God was screaming because what happened, the deceiver became the deceived. God was even shouting at Jacob through that whole incident to stop him in his tracks because he is on a self-destructive course. But instead of seeing it, there is an odd, there's again a lot of tit-for-tat between him and Laban, and he's since fled from Laban, and he's now a bit of a, a nomadic wanderer again, just like his forefather Abraham, and Esau now is coming to see him. And Jacob's got a plan. His plan is, because he's filthy rich, he basically has a caravan of blessings separating him and Esau to hopefully try and um, win him over through all these gifts and presents. He's not going to see him for some time. And um, there's, there's something else that's been going on in Jacob's life. And um, because he has a favorite wife over another, his family is also very volatile and weak. That's going to manifest itself in a few chapters later when his 11 sons are going to sell Joseph into slavery because of the fractured relationship due to his unbiblical practice of uh, polygamy at the time. He puts these plans in motion in verses 22 to 23, but look at verse 24. In light of this scheming again to try and make Esau like him, Jacob is left alone. Now, here's a guy who was brought up a twin. Here's a guy then who fled and worked for a man who has two wives, who has 11 kids. So if you're brought up a twin, you've got two wives, you've got 11 children, I, I suspect you haven't experienced much alone time, okay? Your life's been fairly hectic, surrounded by people. But now in his scheming, God orchestrates events where now Jacob is left alone. And you know, sometimes that's exactly where God is needs us to be. In the wider context of Scripture, God often does His greatest work when He brings either individuals or much smaller groups of people aside to be alone. Isn't it often that Jesus, He had the twelve, but quite often He did super special things with the three, James, John, and Peter? But you think of even aloneness. Jacob's son Joseph would have to be alone in Egypt for God to bring a redemption story. Moses will have to be alone in Midian for his own personal growth before he would, he had to learn to shepherd sheep in the middle of the desert for God to prepare him to shepherd a nation in the middle of a desert. Esaph only made sense of the, the realities of the wicked and the righteous when he entered the sanctuary of God alone. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness alone. So what does alone mean? It means being separated from distraction, from busyness, from, in Jacob's case, from scheming. And I think it's safe to say that we could either initiate this to get on our own with God to um, encounter Him, or He will probably bring providences to, if we're slow in the uptake, to make this happen in order to bring a teaching moment into our lives. And that's exactly what God does here. Jacob, in the middle of scheming, trying to make sure that Esau, is, um, his anger is settled, um, he's on his own, but something happens next, a wrestle. Now, the Hebrew word for wrestle sounds like the name Jacob. One commentator says, really what the, the text is saying is this, a man came and Jacob, Jacob to Jacob. Jacob has just been Jacob. And think about it for a minute. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. It's the middle of the night. You know that Esau's on his way, 
and all of a sudden, some guy grabs you, pushes you to the floor, and starts wrestling with you. <laughs> What's going through your mind? You're probably thinking, is this Esau? Has he, has he tricked me and maybe come sooner than we realize? Has he hired a hitman or some sort? Of, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what he was thinking, but this is taking him completely by surprise. And we, but it becomes apparent, however, that this is no natural person. Because in verse 25, all this individual needs to do is touch his socket, and he ends up getting some sort of damage to it, indicating that the wrestle all night was not because the man could not conquer Jacob. The man was allowing Jacob to, to fight him. Now, and by the, way, by the way, Jacob is in his 90s at this stage. I don't know what it looks like for a man in his 90s to wrestle all night on the ground with another guy. That's, uh, maybe you want to look that up on YouTube when you go home. I don't know. Uh, I've never done it, by the way, but uh, I don't know what that looks like. But he, he, there's, they're still fighting the old dog yet, right? Because he has lasted all night in a wrestling match with this angelic, divine being. And upon realizing the divine nature of this person, what does Jacob ask? Jacob asks for a blessing. Now, we're beginning to get to the very heart of what we're looking at here again tonight. Because when you think of Jacob asking for a blessing, put yourself in his shoes. What do you think is on Jacob's mind when he's asking for blessing? It can't be stuff because he's already minted with stuff. He's got a whole train of family and, and uh, animals, and he's got, he doesn't need anything else. Jacob has got everything, but this is what we know about Jacob. His relational life sucks. He's ostracized from his biological family. He's been on the run from his father-in-law. He's got two wives and sons that do not get on. When he is asking for a blessing, what's he asking for? I've no doubt in my mind that he's saying something like, make my brother like me again. Connect me with my family again. When he says, bless me, do, do something, change my circumstances. That, that's what he's praying for in the blessing, right? And in response to the question for blessing, there's a question. In response to that, there's a question. response to that, bless me, there's a question. He's at a, he's a time alone. He's at a wrestle. And in response to bless me, what is your name? Now, that question is lost on us in the modern world, right? Um, quite often, now I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush, but quite often in our Western world, uh, we are usually named based on what the name sounds like, okay? You can't name them that, they'll get bullied in school, all right? Or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or that's a good, strong name when we put their Christian name and surname together. But in the ancient world, uh, People were named, it didn't really matter what it sounded like, and we know that because we can't pronounce their names in the Bible half the time, right? So it didn't really matter what it sounded like. The significance was the meaning behind the name. And the meaning of the name in the ancient world, a name reflected a chosen destiny for their life. If God himself was involved um, directly in particular circumstances surrounding the birth, it reflected prophetically God's plan for their life, and it quite often reflected their character and what they represented. You see, this is why Abraham's name is an embarrassment for Abraham. Abraham's name means 
father of many. So you can imagine Abraham traveling through the, 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 um, the Middle East, and he's meeting these other nomadic tribes, and they're asking, what's your name? Abraham, father of many nations. Well, where's your children? Well, actually, my, my wife and I actually don't actually have any, but my name's Abraham because God's told me. That's why it's so crazy. That's why when Daniel and his friends enter Babylon, what are, what's the first, one of the first things they do? Well, Babylon changes their names because they get rid of the, he the worship of the Hebrew God to the worship of the Babylonian gods. It doesn't matter what it sounds like, the meaning behind the name is important. So when, when this person is asking Jacob his name, this is not pleasantries, okay? Th th this question is actually getting down deep. So what is your name? What, is, what does Jacob's name mean? It means supplanter. His name means he cheats. So for example, when Jacob deceived his father Isaac to get the blessing from Esau, this is what Esau says in chapter 27, verse 36. Is he not rightly called Jacob? Why? Because he was a deceiver. So when Jacob says, bless me, the question and response is, what's been your life up until now, Jacob? Who are you, Jacob? What's your character, Jacob? You see, everyone knew this but Jacob himself, or indeed, if he did know it, he has been running away from the problems all along. He needed to become self-aware. In the book of James, James likens the Word of God to a mirror that we look into. And here, in this question, as Jacob is alone, as Jacob has been wrestled and his energy sapped, and he has been injured. A question comes to pierce Jacob right in the moment to reflect on everything that has happened on his life up until this point. What is your name? My name's Deceiver. And I think that's confession. I think it's an acknowledgement of who he was and is. You see, this incident, friends, challenges us. And it searches our hearts because here's what we see. Jacob was wanting God to change his circumstances, whereas God was far more concerned about changing Jacob. And that's the issue. Bless me, what's your name? God was far more concerned in the moment about character transformation than necessarily changing his circumstances. You see, God would have done Jacob a great disservice if he just granted him the blessing without actually addressing some aspects of his character. What's your name? And so the question tonight is, what's your name? What is your character? What is your history? What is your aspects of your life that you're constantly running away from, a little bit like Jacob? Because let me um, give you an encouragement. If you're genuinely serious about your walk with the Lord, if you were to get on your own and you were to wrestle with God, you know two major things are going to happen. Number one, the Holy Spirit is going to ask you very personal questions. And number two, you're going to walk away with a limp. That's what's always, that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you know, for those who genuinely encounter God, you always walk away with a limp. But it's a holy limp. It's a gracious limp. It's a wonderful limp. Um, because we now need to move on to see what Jacob received in light of becoming more self-aware. We see what he needed. He needed to be alone. He needed to wrestle. And he needed a question. But we need to see now what he receives in light of this moment. And he receives two things. One's objective, one is subjective. What's the objective thing he received? He receives a new name. 
In response to Jacob's self-awareness, in response to confession, I am a Jacob, I am a deceiver, I am a supplanter, the response immediately is, you've got a new name, and your name is Israel. Now, the, the, the word Israel could mean he strives with God or God strives. I think there's probably a bit of both in it. Certainly, it, it leans more toward with you've striven with God, but I think there's a little bit of both in it. And this is what is so beautiful about this response from the angelic being. What Jacob has just been told is this, that despite his life, which has been one of constant deceiving, that that aspect of his life will no longer define him because his God will fight for him. Jacob has been made more aware of his person, but immediately he has been told by God, this is who you are by nature, but I am viewing you through a totally different filter. I'm viewing you through the lens of my grace. I give you a new name. And listen, is this, is this very narrative not just even a beautiful picture of the gospel itself? Because think about it. What is the gospel narrative? Here's the gospel narrative. God holds up a mirror before us. It's called His law. And we see in His law our sin, our rebellion, the proclivities that we have. We then confess with our mouths that we are sinners. We confess who we are, and then what does God do? He moves in in grace and said, I don't actually view you in those lens anymore. I view you through a totally different lens. That your, your sin may describe you, but your sin does actually no longer define you. You're, you're, you've got a new name in my kingdom. You've got a new name by my grace. This is who you were but this is not who you are. And that is truly good news because God can do this to us because there is one who took a decisive blow. You see, Jesus Christ was struck with God's justice. So any wounds we receive, friends, any wounds we receive are only wounds of grace to waken us up to the grand reality of who we are in Him. Jacob is a covenant. I mean, the covenant has been given to Jacob. God has already confirmed this in Jacob's life. This wrestling match was not for his destruction. It was for his joy. It was for his growth. He needed to become aware of what he was in order to realize who he truly was in God's grace. But here's the thing. The gospel is much more than an objective fact. He gets a new name. But there's also something subjective. And some, the subjective thing that, that Jacob received was this, a new sense, or we could say a deeper sense, of the presence of God. Jacob attempts to respond by asking the man his name. Uh, bad idea. Uh, God is not under trial here. Jacob is. So the guy, why are you asking me my name? And we then... Uh, read that Jacob names this place where the wrestle took place face of God. And he says, I've, this is Penny Y because I've seen face, God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Now, why is this little phrase important? Because this is the second time Jacob has had a fairly dynamic encounter with God. A few chapters earlier, in Genesis 28, Jacob lies down to go to sleep, and he sees his vision of a ladder, and the angel's going up and down the ladder, and God comes to him and affirms the covenant with him and speaks to him. But Jacob says something very interesting. He wakens from the dream, and he calls this place Bethel, the house of God, but this is what he says, surely God was in this place, but I did not know it. In other words, in Genesis 28, he has this amazing encounter with God, but he was slow in discerning and realizing the presence of God in his life. 
But now God has stopped him in his tracks. He's wrestled with him. He's revealed to Jacob more realities of his sin and brought out confession. And notice the difference. He's more in, in touch and in tune with the reality of the presence of God in his life. He doesn't simply have an objective new name. He has a more of a subjective and reality of experience of the grace and love and mercy of God in his heart and in his life. So is self-awareness a difficult journey? Yeah, we may have to delve into aspects of our past that are hurtful. It is a very difficult thing. And how we are as individuals have been shaped by a plethora of backgrounds. The family we were brought up in, as if it was good, was it bad? Self-awareness is a difficult journey, but it is worth it. A fresh sense of identity, a fresh sense of the presence of God in our lives, I'm, I'm pretty sure that is worth it. Now, in Hosea chapter 12, the prophet, the Lord through the prophet Hosea recounts this incident in Jacob's life and also recounts that incident in Genesis 28 of the latter. And if you, turn to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hosea chapter 12, and this is what we'll, we'll end on. And Hosea does a very interesting um, phrase of language Hosea 12, verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. This is Jacob and Esau. And in his manhood, Jacob, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So those Genesis 32. He then points back to Genesis 28, that latter incident. But notice the language. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. That's a very interesting change of language, isn't it? It doesn't say, and there God spoke with him. Even though this was happening to Jacob, this had application for future generation of covenant members. What is God speaking? The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. There's the application. Look at God did in Jacob's life, and he can do the same in your life. By the help of your God, the God, God strives with us in order that we may strive with him. But you know, friends, he's also the God of the abundantly more. Because we've seen that God was far more interested in changing Jacob's character than he was his circumstances. But just a little bit of cherry on top of the cake, if you read on in Genesis 33, Esau's not angry. God changes the circumstances as well. He changes hearts. He brings reunion. He probably gives the blessing that Jacob wanted at the very, very beginning of the wrestle, but he did more than that because he didn't simply change the circumstances. He also changed this man's character for good, for bringing him alone, for wrestling, for asking him a question, for ultimately Jacob's joy and God's glory. And he's doing the same with his people today. He's doing the same in his church today. And may the Lord bless you in your journeys as individuals, as families, and as a church body in the months and years that lie ahead. I'll just close in prayer and then hand back over to you. And no, I'll just pray that the Lord will just continue to write this word on, on all of us. Father, long after my voice is gone, uh, your Holy Spirit can do so much more because he is not restricted to time, to place. You are the omnipresent God. 
And I pray that this word will have fallen on soil that will have been prepared by you to produce 30, 60, and even 100 fold. And it is in Jesus' name we pray.